Mosaic Ramble Road 3 November 30, 2017 Collectivism versus individualism. In Man of Steel, it's the extreme individualist, the revolutionary or the rebel or the Man of Steel who bucks against the collectivism, the social norms, the traditions, the culture in one movie. But that is an extreme point of view, right? That is, you know, that exalts the individual. But the movies keep moving towards the trend of realizing that, yes, you are unique, you are an individual, you do have an identity, but that identity is beholden to others. It does not exist in a complete vacuum, all right? As much as we'd like to think about it, as much as that is a philosophical position, as much as many will discuss that, in practical terms, no man's an island, everybody interacts with uh, other people. So Batman v Superman is very much an exploration of that identity, no matter how solid or insolid, insoluble or soluble, defined or undefined, bumping against other identities, other strong identities. So, for example, Superman's identity bumping against uh, Batman's identity, bumping against Lex's identity, bumping against the media, or bumping against American identity, how America views itself, or how uh, Wallace Keefe views himself, right? So, or, you know, national, national borders, national identity. So when these identities all start to collide, there needs to be communication, collaboration, compromise, conversation. It isn't simply a matter of wholly asserting your identity with no consequences or effects to that. The only way that you can do that is with absolute power. And even if you do that with absolute power, your assertion of identity through absolute power compromises or affects other people's identity. Unless you withhold or unless you withdraw or unless you restrict your own power and its exploitation. So it's a very complicated you know, philosophical morass right there. That's that's a intensely, you know, psychological question. How, how do we deal with how these personas use their available resources to interact with one another? So as you move towards Justice League, now it's the further integration of more individuals, a broader base, for a more common goal. You started out with this person who's a total outcast, a, a total rejection of the you know, two extremes, right? Uh, collectivist society versus uh, individualist society. And finally, this last stage is about integration into society. And I think the movie, as originally intended, was going to end more on a note of sort of the preservation of individuality while integrating, cooperating, collaborating, right? But I think it became a maybe unintended allegory for taking it one step further in terms of seeking acceptance, collaboration, and the collectivist point of view. There is a spectrum, and there are principles, and there are things valuable from collectivist societies versus individualistic societies. There are costs and benefits to both perspectives. From a Western perspective, it is sometimes very difficult to view collectivist cultures, uh, to view the benefits of the uh, one or the either. 
right? Just quickly, one example is uh, sort of the idea of not free will, but your own destiny. In Western culture, we really exalt the idea of free will to find your own destiny or calling or job, right? That That's a very fundamental idea to the way we think about our lives. But from a collectivist society, they derive a lot of meaning and value from the idea of purpose, right? They, they would say, my goodness, what a tragedy and burden to have to lay on such an undeveloped person without much guidance, without much uh, understanding, that they have to plot out their whole life and they have to make all of these enormous free will choices and decide and re-decide such heavy things all the time. Whereas in a collectivist society, uh, the social norms are, are and the social cues and the prescripted roles are highly prescribed and stratified. So from birth, you practically know what your destiny is going to be. And so instead of spending your mental and psychological and soulful capital on trying to find a destiny, potentially going around aimlessly, you know, just because your destiny is open-ended doesn't mean you find the right one. It could be you squander a lot of time finding the wrong one in the wrong place, or you never find it at all, or you find it too late. Imagine that tragedy. And so the collectivist or prescriptivist view may say, no, society's got your back. Society tells you what you are, what you're going to be, and gives you this destiny right from the outset. So you don't have to think about any of these things. You don't have to worry about any of these things. You just fulfill your roles, whatever your roles may be, be it how you treat your parents, how you're going to be employed, what kind of training you'll do, what your roles will be. Don't worry, just follow the paths here and you'll be fine. And then in theory, this frees up freedom and free will in other arenas. So whatever your leisure time is, now you're free to explore that to its full extent because your bases are already covered. You already know how you're supposed to interact with your family. You already know how you're supposed to interact with your job. And supposedly transcendental kind of freedom is potentially more available, right? Because if Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, you know, the base levels already taken care of by a collectivist society, then theoretically you are only responsible for, or you only need to be concerned with, it, with respect to your free will, uh, those higher levels of stratification. In practice, once you tend towards collectivism, the restraints just keep growing and growing and growing. It's not like they stop. The, the more social peer pressures that are on you, the more those start becoming invasive and stratified and nuanced, and you do get bound by more constrained things than than you would say expect. And look, again, everything's a spectrum. Everything is, uh, you know, these are principles, not absolutes. Western culture is full of a culture, just being culture <laughs> requires restraints, constraints, and, uh, you know, uh, bindings. So it's not like Western culture is free from stigma, free from prescribed roles and uh, interactions, but that's sort of the balance. You're going between one and the other. So what happened in Justice League? Justice League, at a last minute turn, the film attempted to concede to a couple more conventions, you know, concede to what had already been established. 
And what happened was you get, what, maybe 5 or 10% more critical approval. Does that sound right? Maybe 20% more audience approval, broadly speaking. But at the end, nobody... Where's the depth, right? Uh, This is a broad approval. It's an embracing of social norms that avoid discomfort, that avoid uh, challenge, that avoid the, the things that make people squirm, that make people talk, that make people get flushed in the face and debate and discuss. It's more comfortable, so more people are on board, but, but where's the passion? I, I struggle to find or believe that anyone is truly passionate about Justice League, and I admit that is my personal bias. I... <laughs> I, I've seen the film. I see it from my perspective. I can't imagine it. Um, and you know what? That's okay. As egalitarian as I try to be, as open-minded as I try to be, it's not my job to be the champion for all things for all time. Maybe somebody, maybe that's somebody else's role. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll try to keep my mind open to having someone else convince me, or at least propose the argument that this film is worthy of passion, worthy of analysis, worthy of uh, examination. If that happens, that's wonderful. That's great. I think uh, everything deserves that opportunity. And I think everything has the potential to provide that on some level. I just struggle to see it here. And like I said, it's not my job to see it for all things. Somebody out there may be able to see that and provide that. My own feelings, my own reaction to Justice League is, well, (laughs) this is why I love these prior films, because they give you such a rich groundwork for common philosophical ideas, right? So Jor-El gives his speech about what if a child could be something more. So the idea is, in his mind, I've given you the freedom to be something uh, unique, something more, something great. But with that greatness comes cost, comes consequences. And we see that both in Man of Steel and especially in BVS. Leading up to the events of BVS, there is this golden ideal, right? He's doing everything during the honeymoon period that seems to ascribe to everything that that, that Jor-El wanted for him, right? A light that he would be, hope that he would bring goodness and, and, and greatness. But you can see that irrespective of events, even though they were given voice, there was always criticism of this individual. There was always condemnation, too. There was always people that would have been hurt by this rendition because it's specific, right? It, it isn't all embracing. It isn't all, it isn't for everyone right so the specificity of it the the nature of it the the sheer power of it is an injury to some people it's an anathema to batman to lex to wallace keefe and then insofar as he starts to cross national borders to u.s foreign policy so this challenge to individuality this challenge to the public question is how do you rise to it how do you address it and in batman v superman the answer is well you stick by your guns i mean you you have to compromise insofar as you have to interact with other people right you know you have to admit i was wrong you know i judged you wrong i'm still who i am you're still who you are but 
I changed my beliefs. I changed my understanding. I didn't change my identity. I changed my my mindset about you, right? So it's a changing of the mind, not so much of the of the of the identity, right? Uh, that's how it's resolved in BVS. So so Superman takes his identity to the most extreme because, sort of on a superficial level, what is Superman but somebody who benevolently sacrifices some of his power for the sake of humanity. In other words, his power, it could be an exercise in nothing. He could just completely suppress his power for no one or anything, right? He could just pretend to be a normal human being. That's the end of it, right? Or it could be an abuse of his power. He could spend that power purely for his own gain, purely for his own benefit, not intending to benefit anybody or any society uh, it, except insofar as that it's collateral to affecting his own pleasure. But instead, what is Superman? But I have some power, and I'm going to use this power for the benefit of others, irrespective of the cost to me, right? Irrespective of how it affects my reputation, irrespective of how it you know strips away my privacy, irrespective of how it may isolate me, how it may cause the people to reject me, the leap of faith. In other words, I'm afraid that once I come out, once I save human society, is humanity just gonna reject me even after I do all of this? Why would I do something like this for humanity? Not their approval, but but for their sake. If after I do this whole thing, they're still gonna reject me anyways. There, there's a tension there, but that's who he is. That is at his core essence who Superman is. It's, I have some power. I'm not going to restrain it. I'm not going to make that power uh, disappear as if it never existed. I'm not going to abuse that power. I'm going to give that power, sacrifice that power for the sake of people and humanity. So what is BVS? BVS is Superman doing that to its utmost, to its extreme. I'm going to give all of that power over to save humanity, even if it means my death, even if it means uh, the loss of my time on Earth, the loss of my relationship with Lois. I'm going to do all that for the sake of humanity, right? So BVS is the ultimate expression of his identity, and it's recognized, it's fine. You know, the, I, the irony, the, the, the goal, the, uh, you know, the, the dream is that when you become your utmost, that society, the collectivists, everyone else finally acknowledges you for your identity, for who you are at your core, and praises that, and accepts that, and values that. And that's what we see in the sort of protracted funeral. It's like, okay, we finally get it now. We, we understand that you used your power for us in Man of Steel. That's why we built you a statue. But we didn't understand that what else you were giving up for us until you died, right? Once you died, then we really understand who you were. We, we understand why Superman matters. So at that point, that's when society embraces him. That's when society says, we understand Superman, okay? So what happens in Justice League, right? Uh, having been embraced, having been accepted, and now recognizing that these kind of identities, these kind of individuals are good, notice that that opportunity opens the door for other individuals, right? Other people that are incongruous, other people that have sort of a similar makeup. They can be embraced and adopted by society. Unfortunately, Justice League, we don't really get to see that sort of arc. We don't 
see the public interaction with the metahumans. Uh, that, that, that aspect uh, is not really fleshed out or fulfilled. But instead, we see the resurrection of Superman and the resurrection of that identity because we need it, right? We need that power, again, to be used uh, for our benefit uh, at his sacrifice, right? We, his death needs to be sacrificed at this point. His his uh, the, his peace in the grave needs to be sacrificed. You won't let me live. You won't let me die. That is given up so that we can use him again, right? <laughs> so fine, we're going to use him. So what if a child could be more? What if a child could be what society did intend it? Now remember, at this point, society in story has embraced him. Society outside the movie has not embraced him. So what then is the solution in this film? <laughs> it's it's no longer really Man of Steel. It's, it's not what if he could be more, it's what if he could be exactly what we always intended. <laughs> right? It's, it's, I, I think my analogy has gone too long and too abstract. This is how I feel about it, right? It's a little bit like if you raise a child and I love this child because they're so quirky and funny and unique and they haven't faced the rejection of the world yet or even if they have you have always been shielding them always been protecting them always been keeping uh, the bullies at bay right and then they enter into middle school and in middle school suddenly that peer pressure that rejection that bullying that conformity really bears down on this kid right but you're still there you're there protecting him because you raised him, because you know their quirks, or, or may, may, no, you're a friend, you're a best friend, right? You're a friend that loves your friend because of all these little quirks. Your weird little friend is still sort of on the sides, right? And the father says, you know, I know these times are hard, but one day you're going to be extraordinary. You're going to be this, your weirdness and your quirkness, after you get through the conformity period, those weird and strange attributes about you, they're, they're going to change the world. They're going to be the ones that people stand up and, and uh, those things are going to make you proud. These times that you worried about, those are going to be the things that people admire about you. So your weirdness, your strangeness, your darkness, the troubled times, all of that is going to convert into glory one day. That's, that's the hope. Right? But unfortunately, this father has to step away, has to depart. And instead, uh, a foster father comes into the place and they don't know or understand this kid's idiosyncrasies. Uh, they don't quite grasp. They have a more conventional view of happiness, disappointment, you know, success, and uh, glory. Right? In other words, the previous father said, we're going to make it through this, and there's a journey, and there's a destination, and I understand it's trying right now, but be who you are, and there's glory on the other side. That That's sort of the, the mission and the statement. That's that's the uh, prior father, and the, the kid is on board, and his best friends are on board, right? The, the best friends love this kid deeply because of his quirks and idiosyncrasies and uh, weirdness, right? They say, that that's the reason I love this. They really have a you know deep and affectionate relationship with this kid because he's being real and he is who he is. But now that the father is gone, there's no more shield against the bullies and the conformity and the pressures of junior high or middle school. And you're the friend, 
you don't have the authority to really bolster up this kid. The best you can do is stand by them because you, you love them. You still love them, right? But the new father says, you know, the reason you're so depressed, the reason you're so rejected, the reason you're so unhappy is because you're not popular. All these other people, they're bullying you because you're so weird, because you're so idiosyncratic, because you're, you're so specific. You know, why don't you just try to get along a little bit? Why don't you conform a little bit? Why don't you just participate a little bit? If you do the things that the popular kids like, they'll like you and you'll be less depressed, right? (laughs) And on some level, that's true. On some level, the foster father is just doing the best they can and the best of their understanding. They don't understand this weird little kid, right? So they say, look, just... Just stop wearing your hair so weird. Stop wearing such dark clothing. Stop working on poetry or whatever, your weird abstract art. Let's do some things with uh, some broader appeal. You know, why don't you try out for cheerleading? Why don't you try out for sports? Look, we're going to gussy you up. (laughs) Uh, Look, we're going to do a makeover, right? We don't have time to redo your whole wardrobe, but maybe we can buy you some expensive sneakers and maybe we can uh, change up your hair and and let's see how you do. (laughs) And, you know, the the kid is powerless to resist because this is their father, this is their authority, they're a middle schooler, right? So they go along with all these changes and guess what? It it works a little, right? Why wouldn't it work a little, right? If if you're wearing very nice kicks, you're going to get a little bit of acknowledgement. People are going to say, those are nice kicks. If you're wearing really nice shoes, you're going to get a little acknowledgement. They're going to say, hey, those are nice kicks. Uh, If you're wearing, if you change up your hair and it's nice hair, people are going to say, nice do, right? (laughs) But it's a fantasy to believe that those little changes are going to take that weird idiosyncratic kid and turn him into, you know, prom king, right? It's not going to happen. And at the same time, if you insist on saying, like, look, I don't want you to sit at the weird kids' table anymore. I want you to try and uh, court the popular kids. You know, your original friends, they love you. They support you. They want you to see do do well. But it's got to break their heart to see you make such changes just for the sake of, what, 10% more nods in the hall and 20% more general approval, but 0% deep friendships. And yeah, the bullying is going to subside a little bit. You're not going to be as bullied as you were before, but you're still going to get bullied. (laughs) You're still not going to, like I said, suddenly become a prom king or popular because of these changes, much less hastily made ones, much less, you know, obviously evident ones, much less you know, ugly and poorly executed ones, right? And so that's, you know, that's how I feel. I'm, I'm, I want this, I, I love this thing. I want this thing to do well. I appreciate it from the beginning and it breaks my heart to see the changes that it made just for a little bit of a push in such shallow regard when I earnestly believed what the first father said, that one day you're going to cross all this stuff and All of that is going to be what brings you greatness. All of that, you know, specificity is what is going to make you go down in time and make you be appreciated greatly. 
when you leave the stage of junior high and you enter the world stage where there's a greater diversity of friends and choice and opportunity, you know, from the perspective of film, right? In other words, they made a, a couple of changes to pander essentially to a narrow American market in this time, in this era, as they enjoy a specific kind of film in this context. But through the large scope of history, the large scope of time, if you think about down the years, we will literally have hundreds of superhero films. We will literally have dozens of Batman movies. What makes this film stand out? What makes this film notable? What makes this thing significant? And it's it's its specificity, it's its tone, it's its approach, right? That was sacrificed. That was sacrificed in the name of a 10, a 15% uh, Rotten Tomatoes bump and a 20% audience bump. That's... It's tragic. It's like saying, I just want this short-term game at the expense of long-term, you know, purpose and art. You know, that's how I feel about it. I feel that the analogy is consistent in some respects, right? So I'm not going to talk ill about this kid because I understand why the changes came about. The kid still has an integrity to himself in a certain sense, but the kid is also a victim of circumstances in a sense and outside forces in a sense. And so to be a friend that the friend can get angry, right? The friend can say, I can't believe that you're giving into all this and that you're doing, making all these changes and you're abandoning us, right? And you can beat up on a kid that's already been beat up on. I, I don't see the point. And you could say that in theory, everyone's trying to do their best. Maybe their motives are mixed. Maybe their intentions are imperfect. Maybe there's bad intentions here or there. But as a broad perspective, let's say everybody is trying their best, right? The bullies are bullies because they're, they're the product of their culture, their situation, their circumstances as well. The foster parent, they're just trying to do the best as they know in their understanding, irrespective of whatever. And... It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's sad. Uh, but it doesn't help to lash out at anyone, really, right? There's no circumstance in in this situation that we're talking about where attacks helps. Okay, like you attack the foster parent. Well, look, the changes have already been made. They. They already went through the situation. There's no time machine. There's nothing you can do about that specifically, right? You lash out at the bullies. Well, I mean, there's always going to be bullies. There's, there's nothing you can really do about that, right? You lash out at circumstances. Again, I mean, that, that's circumstances. So anger doesn't really solve anything per se. Now, I'm not saying anger is unjustified. Anger... You feel what you feel, right? And you have to decide how to channel that, how to use that, how to take anger and use it as inspiration for positive action, for, for benefit, for good. And from my perspective, I don't see the benefit in continual attack because what does that do? All that does is alienate you from the one person that can actually solve this issue, right? In other words, 
let's say the foster father in this case is the WB. I, I, I've been saying it's Wheaton mostly in my mind, but let's say it's the WB. If all you do is tear into this person, even if at some point they acknowledge that they did something wrong, even if at some point they actually feel a little ashamed of what they did, what benefit is there to conceding to your point of view or helping this kid change, change back, you know, revert to the original circumstance because you're berating them? None, right? Like, all that does is acknowledge their own wrongdoing, acknowledge that they're a bad parent, and let's say this, you know, this foster parent has other foster kids. If they acknowledge any of that, then they lose their other foster kids, or there's other uh, consequences that go beyond just your friend. So instead, I think what you're trying to do is show the foster parent the richness, the value, the happiness, the joy that your friend gets out of being idiosyncratic, right? Of being specific, of being weird. So, uh, of course, here, happiness is a proxy for profit, money, bottom line, and idiosyncraticities are the original cut and specific nature of the, the prior thing. So, you bring out your kids, you know, weird poetry, weird fashion, you know, abstract paintings, and you let that kid engage in again. You, you show, look, this is what makes this person actually happy, right? Or to the studio, you show, like, look, this is what really brings in the money, right? We are willing to pay. We are willing to spend money to see this kid uh, in this situation again, the, in this way, right? And that would move a foster parent, right? In other words, the foster parent uses the solution that they know. They know that if you're popular, you don't get bullied, so the solution is to be popular. But if you show them another solution, then that's something to take on. If all you do is attack them and say, the solution you gave is wrong, all you're doing is confronting the one thing that they knew. You're not providing them with any new knowledge. So you're not providing them with an answer or an action or something that they can do. The only thing you're doing is telling them to reject themselves, reject the behavior or the action that they did in the first place. And we can see just how successful that is through these Man of Steel films. How many times have people reversed identities? Almost, almost never, almost never. Like Zot, unquestionably, never, never backs down, never reverses identity, okay? Superman, he comes up to the brink in Batman v Superman. You know, he comes up to the brink, but nothing in that makes it look like he's happy to do it, right? (laughs) So if your solution for the WB is let's push him to the corner until he begrudgingly retreats into the woods and goes away. I mean, what kind of solution is that, right? No, here's the solution. The solution, the one person that backs down, that changes their identity, that, that transforms, the people that do that. You have Lois Lane. Lois Lane, who, it's all about the story, it's all about the truth, I need this to be published. How is she transformed? She transformed by vulnerability, honesty, sharing, and humanity. This is who I am at my most vulnerable. This is the pain that I suffered at the worst possible time. This is the answer that I found, even if I'm not sure that it's right. What do you think? I value your position, your answer, your approach as well, right? What can we do together 
to solve this, right? That was what reached out to her and changed her position. It wasn't like you're wrong. What you want is ridiculous and you're stupid because if you do this, it's going to have all these consequences that are terrible and I absolutely refuse it and I don't want it, right? No, it was a very human presentation, a very uh, sympathetic explanation, and that's what turned that person around. Perry, Perry, all about the paper. I'm not going to pass notes to your uh, somebody who's saved you. Very professional, worried about liability. And what changed him? What changed him is tragedy and consequences, okay? But even with the tragedy and consequences, he's still chasing the story. How does Lois call him back? Calls him back to his mistake, but not in an accusatory way. She didn't say, if only you had done what I said, people wouldn't have died. You know, she doesn't uh, lay that at his feet. She says, uh, trust your reporter. In other words, we've been here before and we're here again. Last time you didn't trust me, that's fine. It's not about last time, it's about this time. Trust me, okay? A very human appeal. And that's what causes the, the light switch to flip. That's what causes Perry to change, to say, you know what, I know the paper's important, I know liability is a risk, but I also know that Lois is trustworthy. How do you establish trust? How do you establish uh, worthiness? I don't know. I mean, you don't do it by punching people in the face. You don't do it by attacking. I mean, that 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 is not persuasive. I'm sorry, right? All that does is create an eye roll. What when you're trying to build consensus? When you're trying to to bring about action, the only way to do that is for for the solution to be win-win. Okay, uh, I've rambled on long enough. Uh, that's it. Alright, bye. <laughs>